Good morning. It's Thursday, February 29th. I'm Beth Golay, and this is Wichita's Early Edition from KMUW News. Author Brian Turner is wrapping up his stint as visiting author at Wichita State University with a reading tonight from his book, My Life as a Foreign Country, a memoir about war. The question that propelled me into the book was, why did you join the Army? Um, Well, I come from a long line of military tradition in my family. I've said that to people and I've seen them sort of agree with that and take it as if that was an actual answer, but that feels like I'm hoisting all my responsibilities off on the people before me, like it's their fault. I, I've decided to do something or something. It's their responsibility. We'll share part of my conversation with Brian Turner after the news. New data finds nearly twice as many monthly abortions are happening in Kansas now than before the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. KMEW's Rose Conlin reports. Around 1,700 abortions happen each month in Kansas, up from around 900 in 2022. That's according to the Society of Family Planning. Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas have banned the procedure in most cases since the Roe decision, causing more people to travel to Kansas for abortions. Meanwhile, the national monthly average has remained fairly steady. Kansas clinics have expanded their capacity, but say they still don't have enough appointments to treat everyone who calls seeking an abortion. For KMUW News, I'm Rose Conlin. Universities in Kansas spent $9 million in state funding on diversity-related activities last school year. But not all colleges define diversity the same way. Here's KMUW's Suzanne Perez with more. Republican Representative Stephen Howe requested an audit of colleges' DEI spending. Howe chairs the House Higher Education Committee and has opposed diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Audit Supervisor Heidi Zimmerman says auditors looked at services aimed at students who may not have the same opportunities to succeed. Talk to 100 people and ask them what DEI is, you'll probably get 100 different responses. Based on what the universities told us and what they reported to us in terms of their services, it is very broad and is very much in the eye of the beholder. A Kansas Senate committee wants to withhold $36 million from state universities unless they can show they don't participate in certain DEI practices. For KMUW News, I'm Suzanne Perez. An inmate at the Sedgwick County Jail who became ill over the weekend has died. Officials say the 45-year-old man appeared to suffer cardiac arrest on Sunday. Medical staff and first responders treated him before he was transported to the hospital. Jail officials say the family decided to remove the patient from life support on Tuesday. The man had been in jail since November of 2022. He is the second jail inmate to die this year. The Kansas Bureau of Investigation is working with the Sheriff's Office to investigate the death. The Kansas City Chiefs announced Wednesday renovation plans that would keep them playing at Arrowhead Stadium for the foreseeable future. Here's Greg Eklund with more. The Chiefs' $800 million renovation plan won't happen unless Jackson County voters renew a 3-8 cent sales tax that's on the April 2nd ballot. Unlike the Kansas City Royals, who've cited structural concerns at Kauffman Stadium next door, the Chiefs plan to upgrade and stay in Arrowhead. Chiefs President Mark Donovan chalked the contrast up to construction differences. There's a very simple answer. Believe it or not, bad batch. So one team got a good batch of concrete and one team didn't. 
Renovations won't start until after the World Cup in 2026. The Chiefs played their first game at Arrowhead in 1972, one year before the Royals opened their venue. I'm Greg Eklund. University of Kansas football coach Lance Leipold signed a new contract Wednesday that will increase his overall compensation to more than $40 million through the 2029 season. The contract bumps Leipold's annual salary to $7 million. It also includes more money for hiring assistant coaches and support staff. Leipold has helped rejuvenate the KU program, taking the Jayhawks to consecutive bowl games for the first time in more than 15 years. He was linked to several college openings this offseason, but decided to stay in Lawrence. Prescribed burning of Kansas rangelands will begin early next month. Smoke from the fires can affect the air quality of areas downwind. The pollutants released may cause problems even in healthy individuals. State health officials recommend that people with respiratory conditions limit outdoor activity when smoke is present. The fires help to control invasive species, provide better places for cattle to graze, and reduce the risk of wildfires. More than 2 million acres are burned each year in the Flint Hills of Kansas and Oklahoma. Lyle Schutte will serve as Admiral Windwagon Smith for the annual River Festival this summer. Schutte has been a Riverfest volunteer for more than 30 years. He became involved with the festival when he was stationed at McConnell Air Force Base and participated in the bathtub races. Admiral Windwagon Smith is the official ambassador of Riverfest. Schutte will help host numerous events during the festival's nine days. The 52nd River Festival is scheduled for May 31st through June 8th in downtown Wichita. More information is at wichitafestivals.org. We'll be back after this. The stories our families share often have a tremendous impact on who we become and what we pass on to future generations. From stories shared around the dinner table to those we've heard well into adulthood, these stories are important and should be remembered and celebrated. We'll be sharing some of these stories at KMUW's Wichita's Big Read event on April 19th. If you have a family story to share, go to KMUW.org to find out more info and apply to be a speaker today. This is Wichita's Early Edition. I'm Beth Goulet. Brian Turner is wrapping up his stint this week as visiting author at Wichita State University. Turner is best known as a poet, but he'll be giving a reading tonight for his book, My Life as a Foreign Country, a memoir about war. So this is a memoir. But it's not like any memoir I've ever read before. Could you give our listeners a description of my life as a foreign country? Yeah, you know, maybe I could start by describing what it's not, in a way. Like, I could have written, I was a soldier in the Iraq War, and I could have written about my experience there, starting out with uh, something like it. Oh, 0300, we locked and loaded and crossed the, the border from Kuwait into Iraq, and then, and then, and then, and then. And it's sort of very standard sort of soldier's biography or memoir kind of approach. Um, but this is not that. This is a very fragmented, I think there's about 136 sections, and uh, it's layered. It's a braided narrative. So the question that propelled me into the book was, um, why did you join the Army? Which seems like a very simple question, but I thought about myself standing on the tarmac late, late at night with a weapon in my hands and a large rucksack on my back, with a long line of other soldiers about to board a plane to go to Iraq and go to combat. And I thought, 
how do I, how does he answer that question? Does he say, like I had often told people, um, well, I come from a long line of military tradition in my family, which I, I've said that to people and I've seen them sort of agree with that and take it as if that was an actual answer. But what does that mean when I'm standing on tarmac? I, that feels like I'm hoisting all my responsibilities off on the people before me, like it's their fault. I, I've decided to do something or something. Or it's their responsibility. But I had chosen to do this. And I think uh, deep down it connects to when I was seven years old and I would see the veterans of my family out front drinking beer, smoking cigarettes in a kind of private circle talking about their experiences and kind of wanting to be in that conversation. That's probably closer to the reason why I joined the military. And that's some of the stuff I discover inside the book. So it's layered. It talks about my time in Iraq, but it also goes back generationally to think, what does it mean to come from a military tradition? You know, there were mentions in the book, and these are quotes. When I come home from my own war, we will talk about these things. Or, he was a man of historical silence. And this was talking about your grandfather, who shared a story with you that he hadn't told anyone in 65 years. And then later, there was the entirety of Section 134. Maybe it isn't that it's so difficult coming home, but that home isn't a big enough space for all that I must bring to it. America, vast and laid out from one ocean to another, is not a large enough space to contain the war each soldier brings home. And even if it could, it doesn't want to. We hear about veterans who are never able to talk about their experiences when they come home. But are conversations with other veterans helpful? Like you talked about being able to join that group of elders when they were talking about their war experiences. Is that helpful? Um, sometimes yes, and sometimes maybe yes in a different way. I don't know. Um, for example, my grandfather did say what I quote in there, but I, I you know, there's a, there's a moment, I think I was about eight or nine years old, maybe seven, I'm not sure, I was young, and we were in the kitchen of his house, and, and I'd heard stories, not from him, but from others about how, he was a Marine in the Pacific in World War II in the, in the infantry. I had been told that he had killed a Japanese officer with a machete in the jungle. And, um, and I knew the machete was in the house. And so I was in the kitchen, and he walked in one day, and there was no one else around. And it was just the two of us. And he didn't say a word, and I didn't say a word the entire time. But he had the machete in his hands, and he sort of, it was like a sacred moment. He sort of held it in both hands and then sort of offered it to me to hold. And then I put my hands out and held the machete and then like looked at him. And there was this moment between us. And then I gave him the machete back. And then he took it back and kept it wherever he put it. You know, that's part of why I joined the military, too. Whatever happened in that moment is an unspoken thing. But there was something there that's profound to me that I'm still trying to figure out what he was trying to teach me or say, you know. And, you know, the, the conversations um, ex extend outside of the those with military experience. So I've spent... The last five years, I've been driving all over the country. You know, I've driven to California several several times. Me and my dog, she's right here in the studio with us. And <laughs> and you know, I drove up to to California, and then up to Montana, and then I actually drove years ago. I, I think around 2018, I drove. I was trying to go to the small towns, not any big towns. And Wichita, in fact, was the biggest town that I went to. I went diagonally from Montana down to Florida, and I stopped here at the Vagabond Cafe, and I asked questions of people that I've been asking for years now over the, over the, some of them being things like, who works harder, people here or people like in big cities on the coast and stuff, you know. 
And here in Wichita, it was the only time I heard anybody say, not, this is no joke, the only time somebody said something other than that people work harder here than they do there. In Wichita, there was a biker. There was a biker gang that was outside there, and there was this big biker guy who said, uh, he said, well, what are you talking about, the longshoremen or something, like in Long Island or something? You know, he, I was like, okay, now we're talking. <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, the other questions I asked, like after the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, and it seemed like historians were probably rushing to finish the, the history books on Iraq and Afghanistan, that they were done. These wars are done, right? I started asking people all over, and I have yet to get an answer, but the question is, um, what did we learn from all that? And it's a vast silence. I don't know if this country even even thinks about that. What did we learn? Just over, you know. And I'm, I, you know, I know there are individuals, of course, who think about this deeply. But it seems like it's hard for a lot of people to answer that question. Like, did did we learn something from it? And so that's probably something I probably I, I'll have to write about at some point too. Have you heard from veterans who have read your book? Yeah, it's the interesting thing to me is that when I write, I try to write very detailed and very specifically, and yet the specific somehow sometimes resonates with someone else's very signature experience that's very different from mine. We can be in different wars, different like Iraq and Afghanistan were such different spaces and places, and and then Vietnam, and, and you can just go backwards uh, with different experiences in, in military, in the uniform even those who maybe didn't see combat, you know? And there's just a lot of echoes of, of, uh, of experience. Brian Turner's reading is tonight at 5.30 at the Ulrich Museum of Art at Wichita State. Thanks for joining us for Wichita's Early Edition. We'll be back again tomorrow. For KMUW News, I'm Beth Golay. Wichita's Early Edition is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.